with these words on our heart. We beg, we come to you, the world. I feel these uh, help us to enter into this story of David and Jonathan from the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, This story happens right at the very edge of the story of David and Goliath. Um, And that story in and of itself shows us how we might beg God, come to us, come to us, the world, because that shows so many of the imperfections of the way that we relate to one another in warfare. But this, um, this story of David and Jonathan has knit within it also the imperfections of what it means to be human, um, and it is set on this kind of uh, national and international stage, um, a friendship that um, plays out in very powerful ways. So here... Um, hear our scripture passage today from 1 Samuel. This is the very beginning of chapter 18. As soon as David had finished talking with Saul about slaying Goliath, Jonathan's life became bound up with David's life. And Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. From that point forward, Saul kept David in his service and would not allow David to return home to his household. And Jonathan and David made a covenant together, because Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, and gave him his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. And with those things, David went out and was successful in every mission Saul sent him to do. So Saul placed David in charge of the soldiers, and this pleased all the troops as well as Saul's servants. After David came back from killing the Philistine, and as the troops returned home, women from all of Israel's towns came out to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and tambourines, rejoicing and musical instruments. The women sang in celebration that Saul has killed thousands. But David has killed tens of thousands. And Saul burned with anger. This song annoyed him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, Saul said, but me with only thousands? What's next for David? The kingdom itself? So Saul kept a close eye on David from that point forward. The next day, an evil spirit from God came over Saul, and he acted like he was in a prophetic frenzy in his own household. So David played the liar, as he always did. And Saul had a spear in his hand and threw the spear, thinking, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from Saul two different times. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but no longer with Saul. Would you please pray with me? Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some stories of friendship almost get trampled in the night. Ulick was a young Polish violinist with eyeglasses and a pale face. And... Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel met Ulick when 
The suffering and fear was still fresh and new to him. In those early days when he was first issued a blanket and a washbowl and a bar of soap and a safe job, relatively speaking, sorting small electrical parts with his father. Ulick and Ellie worked side by side and became friends, humming well-known tunes from their childhood that evoked the gentle waters of the Jordan River, a place so painfully distant from their present reality in what had not yet been named the Holocaust. Days and months went by, and the friends sat side by side, by side until winter came and their friendship was scattered to the wind. Ellie and his father and all those named and unnamed with them were forced to march from here to there for days and days on end with SS officers shouting words of encouragement through the snow from their high horses as Ellie's feet became stiff and numb from the cold so much so that they felt invisible, disappearing into the pain of the forced march. As Ellie and his father finally approached their final destination, they came to a small shelter, hardly big enough for everyone. And there was a final burst of energy from all those who were walking to get out of the cold and into the small shed. But those too weak to get out of the way were pushed aside, trampled, thrown to the ground. In that moment, Ellie became breathless under the weight of other bodies, cold and tired, yet vigilant, trying to stay alive. And Ellie heard below him a familiar voice, and he couldn't quite place it. It was Ulick. You're, you're crushing me. Have mercy. Ellie tried to get out of the way, but he was being crushed, too. He awoke inside later, not knowing, did Ulick save Ellie's life? Did Ellie save Ulick's life? Whose body still had strength left to push or pull or dislodge so that both would make it safely to the shelter of the small shed? Ulick and Ellie's friendship could not have easily made it, could have easily not made it out of that winter night. They could easily have not made it out from under that pile of bodies. They could easily have not made it out of that long night of suffering. And their friendship, the story of it, could easily have not made it out of the ten years of silence that followed as Elie Wiesel famously wondered about how he would speak his own story of suffering. Ulick and Ellie's uncomplicated friendship of shared suffering is like so many life-saving friendships that never make it into the newspapers or the archives or the sweeping narratives of history. Whether your friend has literally saved your life by pulling you up and out of a dangerous place or saved your life by hearing your story, by trusting you, by sharing your burden, by being there, your friend's legacy might never make it beyond the archives of your own diary. But somehow, this story of David and Jonathan's friendship has survived for millennia, thousands of years. And it's similar to Eric or Ellie and, and Ulick in that it's definitely not a story of childhood innocence, of friendship forged under the dappled sunlight of schoolyard or backyard barbecue. And this is not 
Ferris Bueller, class clown and menace to the community, befriending melancholy, sen sensitive rule following Cameron Fry as they steal his dad's car to have dinner in the city. It's not that kind of coming of age story. Jonathan's life is bound up in David's while a slingshot and a handful of smooth stones still take up room in David's pocket. Goliath's body is still warm. Kingdoms are at war, the Israelites and the Philistines and nameless others. In fact, if you read the story of David and Goliath in chapter 17 alongside the story of David and Jonathan in 18, it's entirely possible that Jonathan's life becomes bound up with David's, their friendship is forged, while David is still holding Goliath's head in his hands. But unlike Eli and Ulick, who were victims of a system of violence so unthinkable that we hardly dare to imagine it, David and Jonathan are men on the way up, both with claim to the highest power in the land, the throne. Monarchy is still brand new for the Israelites. There's only been one king, King Saul, and this is part of the story where the Israelites are kind of made to sound like begging schoolchildren. Everyone else has a monarchy, God. They say, can we have one too, please? God, can we have a king? And we're at that critical moment where we're asking the question, is monarchy really working out for the people of God? This story of Jonathan and David's friendship serves less to highlight the classic virtues of friendship and more to zero in on this unraveling of Saul, Jonathan's father, the possibilities of maybe this monarchy failing, and also the possibility that David might have what it takes to sweep in and save the day. Jonathan ends up spending, if you read the, the rest of the Jonathan and, and David narrative, he, spends up, he ends up spending the rest of his friendship with David trying to keep his dad from killing his best friend. And that's kind of one of the most intense kinds of friendships, where you're the king, your father, wants to kill your best friend, David. Jonathan could have interpreted David's rise to power as a threat to himself, really, in the same way that Saul does. Jonathan could have let his father self-destruct and let his father take David down with him and leaving Jonathan in power. There's a lot of other ways this story could have played out. But Jonathan takes that more risky, more complicated route and spends the next two chapters hiding David helping him escape, praying for blessing, and going to bat for David against his father Saul. In one part of the story, in fact, Saul throws a spear at his own son, Jonathan, when Jonathan asks, what did David really do wrong? So this is a costly friendship for David, This is a, for, for Jonathan. This is a costly loyalty. And Jonathan has absolutely no guarantee that this is going to work out in his favor. So that right at this critical moment when Jonathan and David become friends, Saul's anger rises to the forefront. He's so angry about David's success that he burns with anger. You know that feeling. Maybe it's only come to you in little spurts, or maybe there's been something that has been kind of a slow burn that wells up inside of you, that anger that you can't let go of. And maybe, maybe Saul has a right to be angry in this situation. You can kind of envision this story as a highlight reel, a rocky training montage in which David battles larger and larger opponents to prove his military prowess. 
that if you look at verse 5 there, it compresses time. It boils down days and days and days of battle into one sentence, helping us sense David's rise to power. Saul's son Jonathan, at the beginning of the chapter, pledges his love to David. And now the troops love David. Saul's servants are pleased with David. Maybe Saul has a reason to be angry. David comes home from one last battle, and the women go out to greet the men who are coming home victorious, and the women are mocking him in their victory song. Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. I have a feeling it must have been a catchy tune, weekly top 40 in the ancient Near East. Otherwise, how else would we have still this, this song that the women were singing as a victory march? So, annoyed, burning with rage, in a death-dealing fury, Saul sets out to kill David. This David saga is packed thick with savage intrigue, murderous subterfuge, so much so that Hitchcock or Scorsese or Tarantino would feel sufficiently at home adapting it to film. But by the end of this passage, Saul is afraid Maybe his anger hasn't diminished, but now fear is laid on top of it. Because Saul knows the truth, right? He says, God is with David and no longer with Saul. So this is, this is our little theological conundrum here in the book of 1 Samuel. We don't talk about this very much in Christian community, that God favors one person over another. We talk more about God's love covering everyone. We talk about God's presence being available to all. We don't, and may, maybe we talk about sensing that God has no longer called us to do X, Y, and Z, right? That we've had a good run doing the things that we've been doing, the way we've been doing them, but maybe God is nudging us to change. There's something in here about this theological question of how we deal with failure, right? Where is God in the midst of failure? as we see Saul unravel. How do we talk about what we would have hoped could have happened versus the disappointment that actually happened? Do we ask, God, where were you in the middle of this, as the psalmist does? Do we say, maybe we should have listened to God in a different way, as we might say in our prayers of confession? Do we cry out, God, why didn't it turn out the way I thought it would, as we do in our prayers of lament? We have ways of talking about this in our theological vocabulary, but we have, to, we have to search for it, right? With Saul, we are seemingly at once urged by the narrator to feel sorry for Saul and also to want to shake him awake, to open his eyes, to tell him, Saul, look, here's the deal. David can help you. David's success does not have to mean your downfall. Maybe you've known someone like Saul, someone who would let things get under his skin and it derailed him. Someone who could have looked at things with a different attitude, could have played nice in the sandbox, could have had a change of heart, but she chose the path of self-destruction instead. I've seen it happen. You've seen it happen. And the whole time, no matter what you say, you can't help the person see that they're getting in their own way. Within that is some question about how we keep our eyes open to God in the midst of our own failures and our friends' failures, in our own weaknesses and our friends' weaknesses, in our own stubborn inability to listen, and maybe in our friends' inability to listen. Where is God in the midst of all of that? 
It's hard to say what the good news is here concerning David and Jonathan's friendship. We can definitely say that Jonathan is good news for David, right? That friendship for Jonathan and David is a saving grace. Jonathan literally saves David's life over and over and over again. And it's a great story, 18 through 20 in 1 Samuel. uh, Very interesting little pieces of the narrative where Jonathan, just at the last moment, gets David out, or they, they plot to have David in this place instead of that place so David doesn't get killed by Saul. But on the other hand, where is the good news in Jonathan's dad trying to kill his best friend? I'm grateful for stories like this in Scripture, actually, where the good news comes in the midst of a sticky situation. I think our life is more often like that, right? That good news is interspersed in the real-life struggle of family and friend and impossibility. Our salvation is worked out in a nonlinear fashion where we, like the song Amazing Grace says, where we are once lost and now we are found, right? I think it's more a, a constant cycle of lost and found and lost and found and lost and found over and over and over again. Today is World Communion Sunday, and all over the world, people are coming to the table again. Some people maybe today are coming to the table for the very first time, but many, many, many Christians around the world are coming to this communion table coming to the Eucharist, coming to the Lord's table for the hundredth time, for the two hundredth time, for the three hundredth time, seeking again and again that sense of God's good news in the midst of our messy human lives. None of our lives get wrapped up with a neat little bow. We might try to make it seem as if our lives are tied up with a neat little bow, but God knows what's underneath the glimmery surface, right? God sees the struggle underneath. And it's friendships like David and Jonathan that allow us to reveal to each other these deeper sorrows or the unkempt parts of our lives, the failures, the honest mistakes, the places where we've needed things to go another way and they didn't go that way, the places of sorrow, of pain, of hurt. We need friends like David and Jonathan. So as we take a chance to approach God in bread and cup today. May the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation be for you and for all of us a strengthening of our connection to the God who gives us friends, gives us friends in our time of need and who is our friend to listen and be with us in the mess. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.